You're listening to Working Code. And now your hosts, who wish they were Boolean, so the next time they're wrong, it's only by a bit. Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. All right, it's show number four for January's... Uh, <laughs> I screwed it up already. Tim's dancing. Yeah, you know, you subtracting. It's the music. Yeah. All right, it's show number four for January the 6th, 2021. Can you guys believe it? It's already 2021. We're, we're recording Dang. this in Goodness. December still. Uh, and on today's show, we're going to talk about imposter syndrome. But before we jump into Triumphs and Fails, we just wanted to briefly acknowledge that uh, this is the first episode that we're recording after we have launched. So our first episode is out. We're live! We're live! <laughs> right! And people are listening to it, and it's been going wonderful. We have like over... Let me pull up the stats here. 87! Over 87! And yeah. zero haters yet. <laughs> zero haters. <laughs> We haven't made so, it till we got haters. We need some haters, brothers. <laughs> Episode one has 90 downloads. Does that mean listens? Not necessarily. It just means downloads. It's like for me, I have um, I have a, like a lot of podcasts that I listen to set up to automatically download and add it to my like playlist. And so I get, I'm like 36 hours behind, but that's because, you know, some episodes, some podcasts I put at the top of my queue and some go to the bottom and so, and then when I find a new show, it's like, okay, I go through their entire, like, last year or two catalog, and I go, okay, well, I want to listen to that one, and that one, and that one. So I, I, I so I end up adding, <laughs> like, two or three or ten hours to my playlist, and so, like, right now, I'm, I'm many hours behind. We're Plus, at 90%, you know, audiobooks. And, we're at 90%, because we only know 100 people, all of us together, right? <laughs> yep. So we're at 90%. We're, we're almost there. Come on, guys. And we share, we share easily 75% of the, those 90. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I meant. All of us as a whole, we only know 100 people. Yeah, I currently have 33 hours and 12 minutes in my podcast queue to listen Holy to. Holy cow. I mean, I guess it helps that I listen at like 2x kind of as my baseline. Yeah. But. Do you ever wish you could listen or watch movies on 2x I, I, yes. it's a terrible instinct but sometimes- i do actually so i i watch most of the tv that i watch i watch on plex and and i have a a browser extension that allows me to speed up any online video <laughs> so i watch it in the browser and I, I, i've that's it's been wonderful because there's like sh- there's shows that young i want to go back and get off re-watch. my lawn get off my lawn you young people <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm I'm wrapping up a rewatch of Breaking Bad. It's been you know many years since I saw it, and I'm going back through it. And the the thing that's been painful about it is that it's slow. It's a it's a very kind of methodical, slow paced show. It's a wonderful show, but it's so slow. And so I've been watching it at like one point five or two x, uh, and that's been great because then I can watch like two episodes on my lunch break instead of just one or something. You're um, fast forwarding your life, be like that Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> oh yeah, what Remo- was that movie? Remote. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one. Where he fast forwarded through through all the good parts of his life. Uh, well, uh, Adam Sandler also has a version of that. I think called Click or. No, something. I'm sorry, you're 100 percent correct. <laughs> I was totally wrong. It was not Jim Carrey. It was ah. not remote. It was that. It was completely what you said. <laughs> this is why you've never heard of it, Adam. That's right. right. Click. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess let's do triumphs and fails. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take the reins. Uh, let's see, Tim. I'm gonna come to you first. What do you got for us this week? So I've been playing around with Redis, uh, Ooh, a little late to the Redis. game. Yeah, I, I actually read some of your blog, Ben, before I jumped on the Redis train. But yeah, it's, it's just, just been messing around with that. It's just really cool technology. 
I love how easy it is to to set up and to to scale and just yeah, it's just quick and fast. And I just I wish more technology were like that. It just it just makes sense. You can it does a whole lot. I don't need it for everything it does, but what I need it to do, it does and does easily. So I'm just really happy to that's awesome to, to set up a Redis cluster and and to use it. We're, we're getting a lot more load balancing and and trying to make things more uh, fail redundant. So, what are you yeah. using it for? So uh, that thing I talked about in an earlier episode, where mm-hmm. it, it's uh, financial data, we, we just need to persist some data across multiple nodes for a short period of time. Okay, and uh, I didn't want to do it, you know, using sticky sessions or anything like that. I just wanted something simple, and Redis fits the bill. So that's awesome. It's nice. Working great. Yeah, we use uh, Redis for our sessions as well. Yes, it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. We do too. And uh, I was that's I was going to bring that up as well. The the thing that kind of blew my mind at first, and then as soon as I as soon as I saw it was happening, and thought about it, I was like, that makes perfect sense. Is that if you use external storage for your sessions, then your sessions survive a app server restart. Yeah. Yep. Which if you're using the in memory sessions, which is the default, right. then then they don't. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, one of the biggest reasons we want to be able to to update code and update do service patches and everything on a node, and not take everything down. So that mm-hmm. way we can just go through one, two, three, four nodes, restart them, and you never lose a session in production. Yep. So, yep, hundred percent awesome. uptime. Nice. I have this sense about Redis that I want to use it more, but I don't know how. <laughs> like it, there's the API. I mean, it does some much more complicated things, but the general API for it's quite simple because it's basically just kind of getters and setters on yeah. this giant key store, and it's so fast. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like staring at it. I'm like, what do I do? How do I leverage this? There's got to be more things I can use it for. I I did a really fun thing with Redis. Um, so we uh, one of the things in our product that is kind of heavy lifting is uh list segmentation, right? So you we have a giant list of all of your people that you know about and you we wanted we wanted it to be possible for you to say okay, give me a list of everybody that is currently over the age of 80 that lives in this zip code that has an engineering degree that they received in 2004 that um, has made a gift in the past, right? Like it made a donation. That's a lot of criteria to put in there and we wanted it to be a system where we can set up individual criteria like okay give me the people that made a gift in this year or that are this age or live in the zip code whatever and they can kind of mix and match the criteria themselves so we started out with sort of like a sql builder approach and um building the sql query and it was functional but it's hard to build that in a performant way Um, and so what we ended up doing was each of those filters um, returns like a, a set of the, the primary keys. And then we throw all of those into different sets in Redis. And then Redis has a, I forget what the, it's called S inter, set intersection. So you have like a set for each one of these filters. And then you say, okay, give me the intersection of all these filters, all these IDs. And it gives you the only the IDs that are in all of them. Hmm. And then you've got the list of IDs that match all of your filters. And you can go, okay, here's your list of people. It's super fast and and awesome. Very cool. That's my triumph. Awesome. 
All right, Carol, what do you got for us this week? So I don't have anything work-related that's triumphal failure because being sick, I pretty much couldn't use my brain. So I guess for me, the triumph is I'm not dying anymore. Right, so right, that, right uh, now. <laughs> right here, right now, I am getting over COVID, but the failure would be that both of my children got it. So um, they're both in the other part of the house sick. So we're just trying to get through it. I figure once it's in the house, you kind of got to assume everybody's going to get it. Yeah, yeah, I was I was hoping they'd be asymptomatic, but they weren't. They've run mm. fevers, they've coughed, they've got the whole thing going on. Yeah. So we're just trying to get through. But well, we're glad you're on the mend and it wasn't as bad as it could be. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I feel very lucky that all I had was what I had because I've heard way worse. Yeah, I've got a friend, he's older, but uh, he's in his 70s. He's He's in ICU right now. With COVID, so yeah, jeez, oh, praying that he he makes it through. Absolutely. Yep, All right, yep. Ben. How about you? What do you got? I have some pretty good triumphs, I believe. Uh, so we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, typically, I mean, I guess it depends on your business, but typically, between Thanksgiving and New Year's, stuff is usually just a little quieter. Businesses are not always, you know, at work. So I've been taking the opportunity to do some stuff that's not necessarily feature development. Uh, So one thing that I did was I went through our application and I did an audit of our third-party JavaScript vendor libraries. And I ended up deleting over 200,000 lines of code. Um, Which on one hand, you're like, but nobody was using that code because it was all old versions of libraries. But on the other hand... It has to get packaged into a Docker container, mm-hmm. and then that Docker container has to get pulled down to everything that gets deployed. So I, I like to have the, the Boy Scout rule where I'm just like baby stepping towards a leaner, lighter development environment. So I was pretty sure. excited about that. And then the other triumph I have was we at work have a giant monolith amongst other things. And years ago a couple of teams tried to start slicing parts of that monolith off into Mm -hmm. microservices. And we were very naive in how we were doing things back then and made some poor, let's call it boundary choices around some of those (laughs) microservices. And I've spent some time merging those microservices back into the monolith. And I just finished merging back in, I think, my fourth microservice back into the monolith, back into the right-sized <laughs> service. <laughs> and, uh, again, you know, now it's just another container that doesn't have to get deployed anywhere and uh, uh, easier to maintain. And um, it gives me an opportunity to, to uh, tweet out my Thanos gif where he's putting one of the stones <laughs> back into the... Yeah. The gauntlet. I don't know what the name of the gauntlet is. I think the Infinity Stone gauntlet. The, yeah. the power glove. Yeah, yeah. The Nintendo power glove. Yeah. <laughs> I was pretty excited about that. That's cool. Awesome. It feels like the opposite. Like it feels like that's something typically you wouldn't be super excited about that I took the microservice back to the major app. So, well, I think, you know, what we see in our industry in general, and I'm sure this is everywhere, is is everything operates on some sort of a pendulum, right? Where an idea Cyclical. becomes popular. You go way too far in one direction, then you realize you went too far, you start coming back and you Mm overcorrect and then you find a balance eventually. Yeah. 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 I mean, if microservices aren't done right, it it doesn't, I mean, particularly if they're all talking (laughs) to the same data source. 
yeah, exactly. the data source becomes a bottleneck, then what's the yeah. point of the microservice? Yeah, we're experiencing some of those growing pains now too. We have um, a similar story coming from a, just a, a single monolith. One application server did everything, and and sort of as things became bottlenecks, we would break those off into their own microservices. Um, and one of the pains that we're going through now is initially we were um, rewriting those things as Node.js things uh, or like Node.js sort of micro apps and running those on the same server using PM2. And then more recently, we've been creating containers out of them, deploying them to ECR, the, the Amazon Elastic Container Registry, and then running them on Fargate, um, which is part of their Elastic Container Service, ECS, if I'm getting that correct. Um, sure. And uh, it's just been kind of a... It, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks where we're kind of losing track of what is the right way to do development on this little part of the project? What is, you know, how do you, the the development environments are getting kind of tangled and um, deploy procedures are getting a little bit tangled, but at the same time we are improving our, um, like our CI situation. We're starting to make a lot more use of GitHub actions. And um, so it's like things kind of have to get worse before they get better, at least for us. Yeah, and and one thing that's interesting, and I've and I've heard people talk about this in various presentations about microservices, and and I, and I think this is sort of I don't want to say this is where we went wrong, but this is sort of some of the stumbling that we did at first was that we weren't necessarily solving technology problems; we were solving people problems. Right, like we had too many people trying to go through one deployment queue. Yep. So it was like we wanted to create separate lines of deployment just so that we could push more people's code up into production concurrently, having nothing to do with necessarily how that code was organized, which turned out to be not a great choice. So uh, I guess this is probably a good place. I'm going to plug a presentation by uh, Dan McKinley. You might have heard of him. I think he's his like Twitter handle and his handle everywhere is McFunley. If I remember correctly, um, <laughs> he has uh, he has many good presentations, but the one that I'm thinking of is called the Push Train, and it's about um, continuous delivery um, and just the way that that they learned or they figured out how to do it. I guess it was when he was at Etsy, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, uh, yeah. I'm looking at it now. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but it was a it was a really good presentation and, and good to. Uh, think through some of the challenges of uh, many developers working on the same project and dealing with many releases in a day sort of thing. It's cool. Well, my, my opinion, if, if, if you want to take a look at it, someone who's done microservice correctly, I'd look at the Logum framework. Uh, Logum. How do you spell that? So yeah. Logum is a Swedish word. My wife is Swedish. And so Logum kind of means in Swedish that... They have this idea of you, you don't have too much, you don't have too little, you have just enough, it's just right. Um, and that's logom, L-A-G-O-M, framework.com. Um, it's based off of Scala and Akka. Um, it, it's a very highly opinionated framework. So they, they don't give you a whole lot of room to kind of do things the way you think you should. Uh, but it's a very well done microservices framework. If you ever want to take a look at that, um, we don't actually use it. We look, yeah. we did evaluate it, but if I ever did 
want to get more into microservices, I would use that because they would kind of force you into best practices. Hmm. You said it was Scala or what? Uh, well, Scala or Play or Akka. So Akka is the actor service that's used. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. Never heard of this before. Well, and and Adam, have you done your triumph? Sorry, I have not. Why don't okay, let's let's jump to yours because I think the deployment stuff is actually an interesting segue into the topic of imposter syndrome. Okay, interesting. Okay, um, so for my, uh, I guess I'll go with a fail this week. Um, I destroyed a database yesterday. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Fortunately for me, it was a QA database. There was a customer that had some work in progress on that database that they were working on with somebody else. And they're going to have to do that work over again. But it, all things considered, it wasn't that big of a deal. I was able to um, restore a backup from production and and um, move along. But it was just a reminder of, you know, don't get complacent and be super careful with destructive operations. I, so what I was doing was uh, preparing a script for um, creating a new database, like mostly empty database for new customers, um, which just needs to be updated every once in a while. When we, you know, as we evolve our product, we have more tables and more sort of placeholder startup data. Uh, and um, I was working on setting it up for a new customer and, and iterating through, okay, it failed that time. So what did, what do I need to fix? The table creation is out of order or something. Mm-hmm. And I slipped over into the wrong database <laughs> and, and just, I just am so glad that it was QA and not production. Cause I felt terrible for it being QA. If I, if, if it had been production, I probably would have like committed seppuku or something. Like. <laughs> oh man. I actually truncated an entire live customers databases one time. Oof. Oh no. What, what, fortunately, they were they, they were having an internet outage at the time, so they actually had no transactions that entire day. Wow! Oh wow! That oh, you're lucky. So lucky. Yeah. So I just restored. I just restored the, the latest midnight backup, and they were none the wiser. Wow! <sighs> I did. I did a, a very destructive action on a production database once. I was working for Purdue, the chicken company. Um, it was oh, just they're a, here, right? In Georgia? The, they, they have a processing plant, a very big processing plant in Georgia, but the he- corporate headquarters is in Maryland. Okay. Um, and uh, so I was, I was a low, like pretty much the lowest man on the totem pole. So the only people lower than me were like the current college interns. I had recently graduated and was full-time, uh, but I was entry level and um, was working on something. I don't even remember the circumstances. I just know somehow... I ruined all the data for like one day. I guess I ruined the table and we had to restore it from a backup or something. Um, But the thing that sticks with me about this is like, you know, I had that like, oh God moment. And I went and I told my supervisor what had happened. The table is destroyed. We're going to have to do something about it. She's like, okay, well, don't worry about it. Um, You know, we'll, we'll restore it from backup. I think the only person that was working in there today was Don and, um, you know, so it's just, just one person's work. And I had a heart attack at that moment, or, or you know, uh, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack because Don was the director of IT. <laughs> <laughs> Except that wasn't the Don she was talking about. The Don she was talking about was a, a college intern. So oh, okay. they just happened to have the same name. But I was like, she just said Don. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I have to go tell the director of IT that I destroyed his entire day's work. And oh, so... Man. 
This all from the guy whose job title is Little Bobby Drop Tables. Uh, <laughs> you did for a minute. <laughs> yeah, that that was it for a while. I, yeah, Little Bobby Tables, or there, yeah. I, I did. I, I think I still have business cards somewhere with like that XKCD. Little Bobby Drop Tables. <laughs> The, yeah, the the sequel injection drop yes. table XKCD snippet. I, I put that on business cards at one point because I could choose my own title. So why not? Right? <laughs> um, Phil's fitting. Yeah. yeah. I didn't drop the table, but I certainly messed it up. Talking about uh, deployments, uh, you know, we'll get into what imposter syndrome is. But for me personally, the thing that gives me imposter syndrome much more so than anything else is the distance between the raw code in my IDE and code running on production. And every step and level of complexity that people involve in in bridging that gap makes me feel so inadequate sometimes. I, I will be honest and say that I still have applications where I FTP my code to Oof. production. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that I get paid for, but I still like, you know, it works and it's good enough. But uh, just the degree of infrastructure that can go into deployments is, is uh, awe-inspiring. You're not editing it over FTP, right? Like Dreamweaver? I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, sometimes you got to jump onto the server and edit some files live. Yeah. What? <laughs> Nobody ever does that. Come on. <laughs> you don't open Notepad++ on the RDP you have open and change it? Oh, man. The worst is FTPing files. FTPing a bunch of files across a bunch of directories, and then you go to check the site, and it's just 500 server error, and you have no <laughs> idea which file it was that broke it. Yeah. So you time. said the the distance between your your code in the IDD, your between your IDD? code in the IDE and uh, and running in production. What did you mean by that? Like all the the DevOps steps and stuff. Yeah, ex- exactly. And and the degree to which that can become very manual versus very automated, right? I talk right. about how in some cases I have old code that I just FTP up and mm-hmm. it just it's live when it hits the FTP server. Right. Uh, but then there's all sorts of continuous integration and unit testing that runs automatically and mm-hmm. Docker container builds and auto scaling groups and all you know just all kinds of jazz that you can throw at a problem like that. And yeah. when I hear people talk about that, more so than almost anything else, that makes me feel like you people are real programmers and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm doing. That's interesting because like, I think that yeah, I'm, I'm with you on, it can be very daunting and uh, a little scary and, and um, make you feel small and, and inconsequential and, and ignorant. But at the same time, that for me is probably one of the most interesting and um, it's the area of my job right now that I think I enjoy the most because I'm learning the most. That's um, awesome. You know, on a day to day basis, we're right now we're going through and we're editing GitHub Actions workflows and doing Docker builds. And I recently learned about like what are they called? Um, not not intermediary containers, but the like layers. You can, well, so in your Docker file, this is what I learned. You can have like. You know, from let's just say you're doing yeah. like a Node.js container from Node, whatever LTS, um, but you can do like from Node, 
as builder, right? So you can say like, I'm building a layer, but that layer is going to be thrown away when we're done. So like I can do run my unit tests and um, if I need to compile something that, uh, so like we have a config container and and we start out with JavaScript files and we compile those down into JSON. Um, and so that all happens in the the build layer and then we copy that into the final layer so that our Docker container, the, the image that we push up to ECR is much smaller. It doesn't have all the, yeah. the source code. It only has the artifacts that you actually need to deploy. Um, and it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing to see how um, sophisticated and uh, it's just, it's super interesting to see. It, it is fascinating. Solutions to these problems. I think that's a multi-stage build. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you yeah, for yeah, sure. I can't remember but but and I and I think it's one of those things where if I really sat down and I really focused on understanding the mm-hmm. the foundational mechanics of it, then I think it would be much less daunting. But it, yeah. it, even now, I mean, I use Docker every day, but like so many other things, I'm using it in the capacity that I'm using something else that someone built, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of. I don't want to say maintaining it, but I'm I'm leveraging it and editing it as necessary. But I didn't start it, so right. there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of tribal knowledge around the technology that's already put in place by the time I get there. Right? Yeah, that is a good intro to imposter syndrome. So it's like, um, because you are lacking a little bit of knowledge there, it makes you feel inadequate or or like you're an imposter. Like you don't belong or or people are giving you trust that you don't deserve. Yeah. I, I like to think about it. I, I visualize it in my head as as a really inaccurate Venn diagram. If anyone remembers Venn diagrams from school where you have overlapping circles. Yeah. Right. In reality, everybody's skill set is some form of overlapping circles. But when you are feeling like an imposter at least uh, the mental model that I have, is I don't have an overlapping circle. My circle is entirely contained within someone else's circle. Mm -hmm. And it's like I assume Mm. that other people know everything that I know inside my little circle, but then they know all this other stuff uh, that's inside their circle as well, which is obviously not the case, but that's how it feels sometimes. Right. Which amazes me that the famous Ben Nadell feels that way. (laughs) <laughs> i mean there's a certain segment of of the community that's like everyone knows you right they, they they look at you like you know you're the guy right and if you if you feel that way then i think they should you know realize that that we're all we're all human right we all we all feel that way if ben uh, Nadell feels that way for god's sake man <laughs> i think everyone must feel it. i hope everyone feels it i guess i think yeah i mean i think that Anybody who is pushing themselves is going to feel it or anybody who attains a certain, uh, uh, once you start to make progress in your career and you start to get a promotion or more responsibility, it's almost inevitable that that sort of feeling creeps in um, because it, it, to me, it's a signal that you're pushing outside of your comfort zone. Right. If all, if everything you ever did was things that you had already done a thousand times before, and you're super comfortable with it, then um, then you would never feel um, unqualified for the the job. And, and I think it's also an 
I don't want to say acknowledgement's not the right word, but it's almost like you, in order to feel some degree of imposter syndrome, you have to be cognizant of the fact that there are things, not that just, not, not just that you don't know, but that you'd mm-hmm. probably like to know, right? If, if you go through work, not caring about things, then you're probably not going to have feelings of imposter syndrome because it doesn't matter, right? Like, you know, Adam, you talk about woodworking yeah. and part of me, uh, you know, wants to know how to work with wood. So I look at that and I'm like, <laughs> oh man, Adam knows how to program and he knows how to build stuff with wood. That's crazy. But then if, if, you know, Tim can eat insanely spicy peppers and I'm like, you, <laughs> you know, don't want to do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a skill I want to know about. Yeah. I, I, you know, if you got teenage kids, you know, they, they seem to lack the imposter syndrome, which is, scary, <laughs> which is scary, which is a blessing, but it's also scary. Cause it's like they, 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 they learn something and they think automatically they're like, the genius at it. I don't know. Maybe it's just my kids. It's like the Dunning-Kruger exactly. effect. Oh, it's right? all of them. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I'm scared of people who don't have the feeling of imposter syndrome at some point in their life. I'm scared of myself sometimes whenever I don't feel that. If I don't feel that level of, of imposter syndrome, I'm like, yeah, I'm missing some. I'm obviously missing yeah. something here. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a signal for your brain, right? And, and it can be useful. It can, you know, if you're if you're setting a goal to push yourself, push your boundaries, and push yourself out of your comfort zone, then it can be an, a good indication that you're achieving that goal, right? So, like something that I was doing a few years back was getting more into public speaking, presenting at conferences, and that sort of thing. And that that fear of public speaking, I think, is a is a sort of a classic imposter syndrome, like. I've fooled these people into giving me a stage and a microphone and I am not qualified to be here. People are going to think that I'm going to do a terrible or that, that I've done a terrible job. And, um, you haven't even given the presentation yet. So it's just, it's this worry that you're, uh, not qualified. And I mean, I don't know. I would, I would trail off into nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And I've had an interesting perspective on this because just kind of the way our, our company structure is, I've been around a lot of multimillionaires. I mean, some extremely, the company that we're a part of is, right. Well, it's brand, just, well, it's just like, it, it's made, it's, it's a bunch of companies that are held by another company. They're all software companies. Everyone's in software, but it's, you know, it's hundreds of companies and some of these people are insanely rich and insanely successful and insanely smart. And yet you can still see a, m- most of them struggle with this. They struggle with mm-hmm. this. Like, they, mm-hmm. like you have a guy who, you know, he started a company that, you know, was extremely successful and they, they pushed him up the chain. And now he's like a manager of this really CEO of this really huge company. But CEO is not necessarily the place where he's most comfortable and you can see him kind of flailing and and that it's just interesting to see i i think part of imposter syndrome is whenever you believe that because you're smart at one thing that you're smart at everything which is not true mm. when when you're younger yeah. you think if you put your mind to it you can do everything and maybe when you're younger your mind is pliable enough to be able to adjust but as you get older and you 
follow certain paths, your your mind becomes sort of cemented in that path. And the the ability to pivot to something completely different is gets harder and harder. And so, you know, you've succeeded, 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 like, well, here, you know, try this. And you think, well, obviously I can do this because I can do anything. And you can't do anything. You think you can until you can't. And then that's that's when you, 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 the Peter principle, I think, you know, we, we were going to talk about that, but that's you, eventually at, at some point you will fail upward. You will find that place where you, you right. realize you're not as good, naturally as good at what you think you are. And some things you're really, really going to have to work at. And some things you're just going to have to say, I can't do that. For me, that's sales. I tried my best at it. I couldn't do it. Um, I went mm. back to programming because, you know, it's just a skill set I don't have. And that was hard to accept. That's an ego blow to think that there's things you can't do, but there's some things you cannot do. Well, there's a tension always in my mind between there's the things that uh, I I want to be better at, and then there's the things where I feel like to try and become better at that would just be to fight something that that feels insurmountable, like. I want to be a better programmer and maybe I want to expand the type of programming that I do. And that feels like a worthwhile challenge. But to the point of sales, like if I had to go sit in a sales seat, I mean, I could struggle and I could fight, try to become better, but I, I feel like I would have, it, it would just be joyless the entire time. I don't think I would ever get to a point where it felt like I was getting to the yeah. top of that hill. And trust me, you don't know until you try it. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's good to know now. Well, here's something that's crazy. So Adam talked about imposter syndrome in terms of public speaking and giving presentations. Yeah. I kid you not, I when I was going to go to my first ever conference as an attendee, not a speaker, was a CF United down in Bethesda, Maryland. And I had to psych myself up just to register to attend because I felt like, who am I to go to a programming conference with all these programmers? Like, I'm nobody. I mean, this is, you know, 15 some odd years ago. I, I almost felt like I had to achieve a certain degree of mastery before I could even go to a conference mm. that was about the thing that I do for a living. I mean, that's nuts it, it, right. in hindsight, but at the moment it felt very very real, especially because you look at the speaker list and you're like, these are the people who go to a conference like this. I'm, I'm not a Sean Corfield or Ray Camden. <laughs> or a Tim mean, Cunningham. Or yeah. Tim Cunningham. Thank God you're not, man. You're much better. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys know who Mike Cannon Brooks is? I don't. He is the founder of Atlassian. Okay. Yeah. So he actually did a TED talk about imposter syndrome and uh, the link will be in the show notes, but he goes through when it started, you know, they're, I think Australian, like an Australian company or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they want like the small startup, like entrepreneurs of the year. And then went on to compete like with 40 other countries. And I don't remember if they won or not, but he was talking about sitting there and him and, you know, the guy that he was working with had, you know, all of 70 people and they're competing with people who employ 40,000. Mm. And he was sitting there like in a rented suit and he was like, I just feel like I'm so out of place. Like at some point, someone's going to walk up to us and go, we screwed up. 
go back home. You're not who's supposed to be here. And he said that, you know, all the guys like he had talked to or whatever, who have these huge companies and employ 40,000 people all feel the same way that at some point someone's going to walk up and go, you're not the right person for this. Go home. We screwed up. And I yep. feel like that's how I am at work a lot. I'm like, at some point, someone's going to look at a PR and go, why did we ever hire her? <laughs> so then I take my pull request and I sit and read it again and read it again and read it again. And I'm like, someone's going to read this and go, why? And send me home. So I know I struggle with that, with feeling out of place, but I typically am able to use it to do better to be like, okay, it's okay if I feel like I'm not good enough because that just gives me something to try to be good at. It gives me like a place to advance. That reminds me of uh, an old, I guess you could say it's like a web comic. It's not really like an ongoing comic or anything, but it was specifically about um, code reviews. Um, you know what? I think it might've been from um, Coding Horror, Jeff Atwood. Um, oh yeah, I and love it him. was it was basically like the measure of code quality is the uh, like WTFs per minute <laughs> at your code review, right? Like everybody's going to have some, yeah. But like the the lower you get that number, the better, right? So nobody pretty much is ever going to be at zero, but um, you know, so just reducing that number is really what you should be focusing on, not eliminating it. One thing that I was going to say is that uh, when I was in school in uh, biology, I think it was, they were talking about walking, bipedal walking, and that essentially walking is a controlled fall in so much as you're falling forward. And in order to stop yourself from falling, you have to step forward. And that's essentially the act of walking. And, and I think, and I think it's interesting to think about imposter syndrome from a perspective like that, meaning that you don't ever get so good at walking where you're not falling forward, that you have to do the falling forward in order for the walking to be meaningful. And imposter syndrome to me can be a little bit like that. Like I have to have that imposter syndrome, that sort of free fall in order for me to step forward and and improve my understanding of things. And if I ever stop feeling that free fall, I might stop wanting to step forward and improve my skills. Yeah. I never want to be in that place. I want to always feel like there's something ahead of me that I don't know that I need to learn that I have something to, to grow into something to achieve. I don't want to be stale or stagnant and just, okay, I got this. Uh, I think it's that uh, tension, right? So, I mean, as human beings, we try, we live in a chaotic world. And we try to make sense of the chaos. Um, if we get to the point where it's too ordered, we get bored. And if it's too chaotic, we get overwhelmed. So it's it's that trying to find that 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 yin and yang, that that edge, balancing the straddling the side between chaos and order. That that fine line is kind of like where we like to live as, as human beings. Um, but it's a struggle. When, whenever we get too comfortable. Uh, there, there's a there's a principle: beware, ye who thinks he's standing, for lest he shall fall. It's because whenever you think you are on solid ground, that's the moment the world comes up and 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 bites you in the butt. That if mm-hmm. you think yep. you're, if you think you're on stable ground, that that's when you have the most to lose, and that that's just life. Uh, so, 
you know, people worry about imposter syndrome, but I just, it's like, I think if we just acknowledge everybody has it at some point in life, doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're crazy. Just, it's just part of life. Just it, accept it and move on. Everybody has it at some point. And if you don't have it, you're going to have it. And when you have it, when you have it, just re- acknowledge it for what it is and move on. I, I, what I feel for is the people <clears throat> that, I mean, all of us are privileged to a certain degree. Um, three of us are, are white males and one's a white female. Um, but the people who their entire life have been told they're not good enough. And that's why it's easy for them to give up whenever they feel that imposter syndrome. Um, you know, if you haven't been raised by people that tell you to push and push and push, maybe you don't have that impetus to get past. So I right. think it's important that although we're, right now we're talking about how it affects us, to acknowledge that there might be people around us who are feeling that right now, who feel like they don't belong and are might just decide to, to leave. And to let them know that that they're not alone, they're, what they're feeling is valid, and that they got to push through it, just like everyone else. It might be harder for them; they might not believe it. But don't don't listen to the voices. The, those yeah. voices those mm-hmm. voices are liars. It's a it's a good reminder to give encouragement to your teammates, even if you're not like oh, yeah. their manager or something. To just like you know say, hey, that was a really good pull request, or or you know, I really liked your idea for that solution that we had at the stand up meeting or whatever. Um, you know, I it's get, a good idea. I Go get ahead. slacks throughout the week just from my teammates just going, Hey, just a reminder, you're really doing a good job. Like even nice. though you don't know what you're doing, like I'm feeling out of it, like I'm questioning what all these acronyms mean, like you're doing a good job. Like you're asking questions, you're, you know, learning things, you're putting out PRs that might not be right, but they're still going out and you're trying. So Mm -hmm. I do get that constant feedback from my team where they're like, you're doing good. I'm like, good, because I don't feel like I'm doing good. I'm not producing like I was at my other job. Like I'm not on top of everything. So I'm like, I feel like I'm way behind. And it it is good to get that um, reassurance from them. Right. And then on the other side of it is like, if you're hearing those things, if you're, if you're sitting there feeling like an imposter, but you're hearing the occasional like attaboy, people are telling you, you did a good job, then those are the signals that you should be looking for. Um, that you're, you're fooling yourself into believing you're not qualified, right? You're, you actually are, right? You were promoted because you were worthy of that promotion. You were given that project because, uh, it was a good fit for you or because it would be just the right amount of, um, you know, new responsibility for you or new um, new topic for you to learn, that sort of thing. So I, com- oh, I was going to say, I have a confession. So a couple of years ago, I actually reached out to Ben and was like, hey, you know, are you guys hiring? And he was like, sure, send me a code, like send me some code and I'll, you know, we'll take a look and talk to you. I laid in my bed and cried because I was like, oh, God, Ben's going to look at my code. Ben's going to look at my code. <laughs> I can't do lots this. lots of line breaks. You'll be fine. No, you, no, here's what happened. I spent a week going, I can't send him code. Like, there's no way he would ever hire me if he looked at what I wrote. Like, there's no way. Like, I can't do this. I ended up, like, emailing back and, like, saying, hey, never mind. Changed my mind or whatever. Because I was so Aww. terrified of having Ben read my code. Although I'm asking him about doing that. So it definitely, that was one of the worst 
a worse ones for me when I was like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Oh, that's so, I, I thought you were going to tell me that I had like, it's all your fault. Your yeah. Like pulled your coat apart and really made fun of it or something. No, I was like, oh, I would that's love not that. like me. That, that would be like the best thing. Like, that's fine. If you do that, I just needed the courage to be like, someone can read what you write. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Fine. I was listening to uh, one of the podcasts that I really enjoy is a called Go Time. I think it's part of the Change Log series of podcasts, and it's about Go. And I don't know anything about GoLang, which I think is maybe part of why I like it. I feel like I'm stepping outside a little bit. And uh, they were interviewing a guy the other week who's been programming, I think, since the '80s or something. And at the end of the show, they asked him if he could give advice to his younger self, what's the most important advice that he could give him? And he had two things. He said, one, do the simplest thing that works. And two, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that's so much about what we're talking about right now. <laughs> it is. And it, it, it hits me. I, I try, like I've, I've uh, tried to be kinder to myself after hearing that for sure. It's not easy to do. No, it's not. I'm definitely my roughest critic. Although, interestingly, I think the simpler you try to keep your solutions, the kinder you are to yourself because it's a tighter feedback loop, right? You, if you, it, When you try to design complex systems in your head and they sound right and then you start to put them on paper and you start to run into a lot of problems and All things seem holes. more complicated, right? So now you're thinking like, oh, I can't design systems like this. Right. And it's like you start to spiral. Whereas if you were like, I could solve this with an if statement instead of some giant inheritance polymorphism <laughs> because if statements are bad, right? <laughs> then like you solve that problem and you move on to something else. And you're like, you know what? I'm crushing it this week. I've already shipped three tickets. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I, so... One thing that helps me, I don't want to say overcome, but become more aware of the fact that I'm unnecessarily feeling like an imposter is is I, I'll notice people say things or, or I notice that people don't know things that I just assume everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the one that always comes to mind for me, and, it, and it's only because I've heard it several times, is people will bring up on, a, on an interview, the mythical man month. Mm-hmm. And I just assume that's like programming 101. Like everyone's heard of the Mythical Man Month. And and you'll be listening to someone in an interview who's been programming for 10, 20 years. And someone brings up the Mythical Man Month. And they're like, oh, what's that? That sounds interesting. And you're like, <laughs> what? I, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> know what it is. Excuse me? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I literally don't know what you're talking it? about. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know so I, I, I guess I should raise my hand here and say, I've heard of it. I know it's a book and I've had people explain to me like roughly what the book is about. So I I get the concept, but I have not read the book. So I don't know if you have been. I I think I had to read as part of a a course at a school course. Okay. It was one of the, it was like part of the curriculum, but so the mythical man month, the basis of the mythical man month is this idea that you can think about effort in terms of man months, essentially the number of people times the amount of time is this man month from like, like, you know, force meters kind of a thing. Like, right. And, so like and, if, if it was going to take Ben a uh, hundred hours to do this project, then the, the man month idea is like, well, then can you put 
two people on the project to do it in half the time or right. four people and do it in a quarter of the time. Oh, it's the it, nine pregnant women. Right, exactly. Like a, a woman can give birth in nine months, but nine women can't give birth in one month. Okay. And it's, uh, it's, and it's this... Uh, it, it's this notion that you can just throw more people at the problem and it'll cut down on the time to delivery. When uh, in reality, the more people you throw at a problem, the, the longer chaos. it usually takes to complete, yeah. uh, to complete it. 99 little bugs in the code. 99 little <laughs> bugs. Take one down, patch it around. 127 little bugs in the code. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I find that I'll, I'll, I'll tune in to those little points in a conversation where I'm listening to someone and they're brilliant by all accounts. And then they'll say something and you're like, oh, okay, you're brilliant, but maybe you're brilliant in an area of focus that I'm just not involved in. But I know things probably that you don't. And it's that it, it, diagram, right? Yeah. It almost sounds petty, but it makes, you know, you're like, ah, I know something <laughs> you don't know. We're all human. Yeah. <laughs> I think with with like a imposter syndrome will sometimes strike when you have a kind of a greenfield project and you're trying at the very, you're, you know, you're used to solving very difficult problems, maybe an existing code set, and then you reset and you're, you're back to this kind of greenfield, do whatever you want. And you're, you have no restraints and you realize, shoot, I have no idea how to start. Yeah. Right. Have you felt that before? Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. So, and I think the the problem is is too many options, right? It's analysis mm-hmm. paralysis. It's it, what Voltaire said. You know, perfect is the enemy of the good. You, you you're like I I have I can do this perfectly now, and so you're afraid to start because the second you start, you start going down the the road of possible uh, imperfection. But you can't be perfect. So be good. Continue to be good. When it's not good, stop and make it good. Yeah, that's that's really all <laughs> you can it. do, yeah. right? There's a uh, I'm, I'm going to mangle this quote, but it's something like an imperfect solution completed is infinitely better than a perfect solution never completed. Something right. like that. Yeah, mm. I've like heard that one done. We're all shaking our heads. I wish you could see us. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when I was very young in my career. I don't know if someone said this to me or if I heard it in a talk. Someone said that the best way to get things done is to find the busiest person you can find and assign it to them. And, yep. I, and, and for years, I did not understand what the heck that meant. And now that I'm a busy person, I totally get it. Because if someone assigns something to me, I'm going to do, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but I'm going to do the least amount of work it takes to get it done so that <laughs> I can move on with the rest of my stuff. Right. Like, I'm yeah. not going to think about what's the perfect opportunity here. How many, you know, what future can I plan for and complexities can I abstract away? I'm going to solve the problem and then move on to my next problem. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's so true. Like, there, you know, I, I have projects that I work on that are like pre planned. And then I have like a bug dropped on my desk at, you know, 7 a.m. or whatever and it's like that that bug gets a a patch and a pull request and sometimes even deployed before like 9 a.m. whereas the project takes weeks yep 100 percent. sometimes i fantasize about you know what if i only had to really work one day a week what sort of you know project could i do the other time then i realized there was a point in my life in my 20s when a company that 
I, I was a part of got bought out and they basically kept me on full salary and I only had to work one day a week. And I realized I spent the rest of that time just goofing off. So <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what I would build if I only had to work one day a week. <laughs> and build a robot that reads Reddit and it's made out of meat and it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> Elon Elon Musk I would Elon Musk I would not be. <laughs> so so I think we've danced around feeling like imposters and mm-hmm. and I and I guess maybe to be more direct in in a meta question is is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a feeling that we all get and I think that it depends on what your goals are, right? So like for me I've tried to in in recent years frame it for myself as uh as something that's good. So like another thing um it it reminds me of this other tactic that I had. So like if I was going getting ready to go on stage to do uh like a presentation or speaking gig sort of thing, you know how you get that the pit in your stomach, you get the cold sweat, you feel like you have to go to the bathroom that sort of thing. <laughs> adrenaline rush. Um somebody once shared with me that that especially the adrenaline adrenaline rush part of that is that's your body preparing you to be able to think faster on your feet and to be more aware of what's going on around you and so that actually helps you do a good job and it because you're thinking faster it also makes you more able to notice your little ticks and your the the things that you do that are imperfect um, but that m- most people will probably let slide by without ever even noticing them. But that concept of like the adrenaline rush is, is a good thing. It's, it's your body preparing you to do well. Um, that sort of changed the game for me in terms of public speaking. Um, and I was able to sort of start seeing that the nerves as a good thing, like, okay, this is, it's time to get amped because my body is getting terrified. (laughs) Um, but similarly with imposter syndrome, you know, I have been, I, I think for most of my career, I've been just trying to push hard and, and grow and become a more valuable member of my team. And so when, um, when I realized that imposter syndrome can be a good indicator for me that I have like reach the limit of where I need to push to, right? So maybe if I'm starting to feel that way, then it's like, okay, stop asking for more responsibility. Um, stop saying, yeah, oh yeah, I can handle that because you've reached the limit of what you should or what I I have reached right. the limit of what I should. And maybe it's time to actually start learning and, and uh, delivering the promises I've made before I start making more promises. And if I can echo back what I think you're saying and what I feel like Carol was saying with her job application story (laughs) is that imposter syndrome is good when it's a driving force. Mm -hmm. And then when it flips over to an impedance, that's a problem. You want want it to inspire you. You don't want it to deter you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty much how I was going to say it was, you know, when it causes you to shut down, then it's a problem when you can use it to do better, when you can use it to be the thing that pushes you or the thing that you learn from, then I think it's good. You just have to figure out how to balance it. So what do you do then if it is, if you realize it is in your way and it's not a good signal, if it's something that's bad, like what do you do in that case? You lay in your bed and cry and don't send Ben any code. (laughs) Not what did you do? (laughs) What should you do? 
I mean, I, I think it's it's how you internalize it, right? I, I imagine it kind of like you're a race car driver and you want to drive fast at your goal, but uh, there's those little, you know, those little warning bumps on the side of the, of the shoulder of the road, and you know you want to get just close enough to those as possible to get the outside curve, but you don't want to get too. But yeah, you don't want to get too far in the rumble strips. And so it, that's, it's an indicator, right? So if, if, you're, if you're feeling the rumble strips, you know, all right, I'm on the edge. But if you're on it too much, you might think, okay, I need to come up a bit. It, I think if, if you let it paralyze you, it's controlling you. And if you never hear it because you're afraid of it, then it's controlling you. So again, it's that, it's that tension, that living on, on the edge of, of creativity. Uh, use, use it as a guidepost, but don't, don't use it as something to, to be afraid of. Absolutely. One thing that I find is very helpful to me, and, and not just in terms of imposter syndrome, but in terms of we talked about burnout and mental exhaustion in a previous episode. And, and I think this is just a tool that I use for a lot of things is sometimes you just got to work on a lot of small things in a row that movement begets positivity. I mean, you, you hear people talk about it when you're feeling down, sometimes just the act of smiling Right. And getting up and walking around like that can have a positive impact on your on your feelings. And I feel the same way about uh, a sense of um, fulfillment and ability that if I can even take a, a, a ticket out of JIRA, that's a spelling mistake. Right. Like that takes no skill to fix. But if I fix it and I push it up and I can drag that ticket across the Kanban board. Like, I feel good about that. And then I do that, you know, a couple of times in a row. And suddenly I'm feeling actually pretty jazzed about myself. All wins. Yeah. Definitely. Something for checking that thing off your list that makes you feel accomplished. Oh, yeah. Do you guys know who Neil Gaiman is? I love him. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Have you, did you, have you ever listened to the commencement speech Mm -hmm. that he did that um, is like, I think it's titled Make Good Art? So he talks about imposter syndrome in there and, you know, he um, explains how he is basically how he had struggled, you know, and talked to his wife and everything and was like, you know, at some point someone's going to show up at our front door with a clipboard that says, you have to get a job from nine to five and you have to go to work because this isn't a thing people do. Like you can't do this. And, um, throughout that speech, he talks to the graduates and he's just kind of explaining how, when you're happy, you know, make good art. When you're sad, make good art. When people tell you it's not good, make good art. Because at the end of the day, you are the only version of you that exists out there. And your brain is the only one that thinks like you think. So use that to be what, what is good to you. Don't let someone else, you know, tell you that what you're doing isn't good because it's coming from you. So just make good art, just make good art. And I feel like that's how we are with code sometimes, you know, if everybody thought the exact same way about how something right, like should be written, then why do you need so many engineers? Why do you need so many developers? We're all going to think alike. But the fact that you put us together and when we're thinking through the processes, everybody thinks differently. So then you come up with a good solution. So you just do the best you can. Absolutely. And and I know, so in the technology world, there's not just the technology, but then there's a lot of content production <laughs> around the technology, whether it's blogging or presentations or 
writing books like some of the people on this call. And, <laughs> and, and I think there's always a sense of, of fear that is what I have to write going to be meaningful for other mm, people right. or is the video that I'm going to make be meaningful for other people. And I would... I would the podcast argue, that we're recording yeah, gonna be meaningful yeah. right. is this going to be interesting at all to anybody and and I will say that it will always be interesting to at the very least you yeah mm-hmm. and almost certainly at least one other person and at the end of the day if you're making good art for yourself and you're making good art for someone else that's that's a pretty good step in the right direction and it's going to be much better than that in reality but the everything is interesting enough for somebody trust me on that one my mom says all of my art is good. <laughs> so he even, he talks about that. He even says like the best work he's ever done is things he did for himself that made him happy. And the worst things that he's ever put out were things that he did just to make money. Things mm-hmm. that he did because someone told him he had to do it. So therefore he did it. And, you know, when he did it for himself and was just happy doing what he loved, it was the best, the best outcome. So. I think we could probably all relate to that on some level. Yeah. Yep. Just make good art. So we talk about doing lots of small little things and it, it can make you feel like you're not achieving a lot. And that makes me think of this idea of the 10X program, or you may have heard that get talked about in other presentations or podcasts. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea is that, that a there is size? a... <laughs> <laughs> it's this idea that there is a class of developer that's so much more productive. They're 10 times more valuable than other developers. And people always talk about that this is actually based on studies that were done. And um, a guy, I can't can't remember the the name of the guy or the name of the book, but this guy wrote about all these history of these uh, myths in the programming world. And he was being interviewed about it. And one of the myths is the 10X programmer. And he was saying that part of where this myth comes from is that it's a misinterpretation of the study that was done. And what this guy found in a study from like the 60s or 70s was that the best programmers are 10 times more productive than the very worst programmers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a comparison of the best to the average, which is typically how people discuss it. And I think it's terribly toxic to think about it in that term. But when you realize that it's a comparison of the best to the absolute worst, you're like, yeah, I'm much better than the worst programmer even if I'm not the best programmer. And I think that's a much more healthy understanding of the original intent behind that study. That's kind of like comparing the, the Super Bowl Patriots versus a high school team. And that's really not fair, right? It's, yeah, they're not comparable. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. Some entry-level programmer is, is compared to some guy who's known it for 10, 15 years and is extremely fast at it. Just, I mean, yeah. Who knows the application? Who knows the workflow? Who knows all of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not the same. But that's not to be said that maybe there's a few unicorns out there, like Ben. Oh. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, so we've been doing this for a while, technology, not this podcast. And when you think about where we started in our respective careers, you know, when I started, it was you did JavaScript or JavaScript. And then then they invented CSS and then they killed Flash and then there were server-side programming languages and then there were uh, unit tests and then continuous integration and all this other stuff. And it it just, it's become so huge. 
And I think we have all had the benefit and the privilege of learning that incrementally over decades. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine we're sitting here talking about imposter syndrome? How about people getting into this field today Mm -hmm. and they don't have that slow burn of introducing new technologies? Today, you jump in and you have to know, you know, React or Angular and CSS and HTML and a server-side language, and databases, and continuous integration, and containerization, and uh, auto-scaling. It makes my and, heart race. Right. I'm like, I'm saying it. I'm like, oh, I yeah. on, the flip side, side. on the flip side, I would totally want, if I could delete the, the, the VB script that I had to learn back in the day, I would totally, <laughs> but it's still taking up space in my brain. They don't have to learn that stuff either. But, I mean, that's a, talk about being kind to yourself. Yeah. You have a lot to learn. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's got to be daunting. I'm daunted by the things I have to, or at least that I feel like I have to learn. And that's on top of however many years I've already been doing this. I, I think we kind of missed a bit of the point here on the topic of imposter syndrome. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, we have some good stuff, don't get me wrong, but we talked a lot about insecurity. A lot of what we said really can just be insecurity. Um, and you don't think they relate? I think they relate. But I think the the key to imposter syndrome is that this is this is a syndrome that people who have made it, you know, people who have reached their goals, who have achieved what they plan to achieve, and they still feel like a fraud. Ah, uh, Okay. Does that make sense? It it does a little. I think so. To me, I think they go hand in hand. Like the insecurity kind of lets it linger, lets it come up because you have some kind of insecurity. Maybe not though. Well, I, I mean, I think everyone struggles with insecurity at some point. But it's whenever you have maybe reached for a goal and you finally make it, and then you reach that pinnacle, whatever that is, it can be professional, personal. Um, whatever that that hill you're trying to climb and you finally get to the top and you you know you've done it and you still feel like you're a fraud like every like people are going to come and take your trophy away because you didn't really earn it and i think that is the heart of what imposter syndrome is i don't think we really tackled that head on does that make sense i can see it who's a football player that deflated the balls (laughs) <laughs> like like that that's a real imposter i mean like you know that's okay you screwed up you should have your trophy taken back you did it wrong so we're hey. talking about the people who are doing it right but still feel like their trophy is going to be ripped away because someone's going to feel like they've done it wrong yeah so that was tom brady and i'm wearing my falcon shirt right now so yeah i agree with you <laughs> <laughs> does he play for the falcons no tom brady played for the patriots to beat okay. the falcons in the super bowl okay. I, I just like it to be clear that i will never get a single sports reference that is set on this show <laughs> I, see i only knew someone deflated some balls and they won something and they should have the trophies taken away i do that i do that <laughs> the details non-existent i i can see that i can see that you know we kind of missed it a little bit i would agree with you yeah because I, a lot of stuff we said everyone's going to feel about about being an imposter at some point but people where it's, it becomes the syndrome portion is people that by any measure are extremely successful and everyone look at them and go wow they, they made it and those are the people that 
they, they still, for some reason, feel like they're a fraud and they're afraid they're going to get exposed. And I, I've seen that. I'll be honest. I don't think I've ever reached any pinnacle of success where I feel like that would be me. <laughs> no, but I mean, but me looking at you, I feel like you're a success. Like you've done it right. You've you've mentored people. You have an amazing family. Like your life to me is you've made it. Like you've done it right. Yeah, and I don't feel imposter syndrome in that regard. I just feel like, okay, that's kind of, this is what I was working for. I don't feel like it's going to be taken away from me. But I, I've met people who have, from nothing, started multi-million dollar companies through just sheer hard work and a bit of luck, honestly. And they honestly are scared to death because they have no clue how they got to where they got and feel like they didn't earn it and they don't deserve it. And it, it just weird... People that I've met who really suffer from this, it's a weird thing because they, they are constantly questioning themselves. And they're also very suspicious at times of others who maybe seem like they're on the up and up and coming up. And rather than mentor them, they're a bit scared of them. Um, like intimidated? What, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they're afraid that these other successful people are going to expose them for who they really are. And it's all in their head. I see. So you're saying that what we've talked to previously is more just kind of a sense of insecurity. And this is a sense of insecurity that's taken to a point where it's almost a paranoia and like a debilitating fear. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, I mean, if you look at on the Wikipedia, it is a psychological pattern. I mean, this is kind of originally uh, diagnosed with particularly prevalence among high achieving women back when, you know, women breaking the glass ceiling was, extremely rare um and this posture syndrome that that kind of became a debilitating crippling thing in their life but yeah you see it more and more with particularly the tech industry where honestly a lot of people that have become extremely successful in the tech industry it's because they were at the right place at the right time i feel like that and that sense of luck you know that, that they get they feel like they're you know they're millionaires billionaires they feel it's unearned because they right. realize that they're maybe not smarter than the other people around them. But to be honest, they, they were at the right place at the right time and they, they made their millions, they cashed out. And now they everyone looks at them like they're some guru when they inside don't feel really different from anyone else. So they, it becomes sort of a toxic feeling to them. Interesting. Yeah. That's all I really had. I mean, that's I just I just wanted. No, to I think that that's good. I think it's it's a good kind of. I wish we could have entered that. I wish we could have entered that way, and maybe you know we would have kept on topic a little better. No, I don't think we got Dang, off topic. Hey, Tim, that. where were you at <laughs> when we recorded the first time? I was sleepy. <laughs> that's where I was. So that's all I had. No, it was good. Good information. It's very interesting. And I agree. Yeah. I'll tell you, uh, I had I had wanted to bring this up on the previous show, but I didn't really have a, a the right moment and um, no entry point. There, yeah, there was no <laughs> there was no appropriate ingress. Uh-huh. Uh, and That's a fancy to, word. Yeah, yeah. Ingress, ingress, <laughs> ingress and egress. Um, and uh, I, I was listening to an episode of I want to say it was Freakonomics the other day. And they were talking about people who are good at lying to themselves. And uh, and they were interviewing the, I think it was swimmers on the show. And they would ask some swimmers if, if uh, there are these things they can imagine about their life that aren't true. 
and the ones that were unable to imagine these uncomfortable thoughts tended to actually be more successful in their sport. And uh, they were saying that because like they get on that starting block or they get out on the field and there is no, there is no possibility that they lose in their minds. And, uh, and they ended up being more successful, but um Sorry, I don't actually know where I was going with this. Let's just get the whole thing out. <laughs> Cut <laughs> I that out. I can see that. I mean, if, if you, in particularly sports, visualization is a big thing. Visualize mm-hmm. yourself making the shot. If you visualize all the ways you're going to miss, chances are you're going to miss. Your hands mm-hmm. start shaking and your heart mm-hmm. starts racing. Where if you feel like no matter what you do is going in the basket, you're just kind of more, you're steady, you're secure, you're, you know, everything's everything's lined up. <laughs> It's so interesting though. I mean, this is way off topic at this point, but in terms of programming, I feel like when you see people who program and they have this sense that it's just going to work out, I feel like those are the people who make a lot of mistakes or they deploy Mm -hmm. something not considering an edge case and it's, you know, a terrible oversight. And then, yeah. Oh, no, sorry. and, and, And the people who, think about well, like what's shaky, every yeah. what's everything yeah. that can go wrong like let me mm-hmm. let me do the pre postmortem in my head like how did how did i fail <laughs> and now let me fix that before we do it yep yeah we i think we've all seen that happen um i know i have personally and i've been in that spot where i'm going hey let's just get this out quick let's just keep it moving you know and then we start releasing things cuz we aren't thinking through it all we feel too secure in that people trust us to just get it right that we forget to stop and think through everything and then we break stuff. Yeah, because I mean, with, with programming, you you got to the happy path is the easy path, right? Figuring out the happy path whenever you code, you, you decide, all right, let's just assume everything goes the way it's supposed to, and what does that process look like? If you stop there, it you're not done. No, <laughs> no. You got to figure out, all right, how how what are all the ways that someone can come through this process and really try to mess things up. And now you got a program for that. So yeah, oh, I, I, yeah. I, I think that level of pessimism is, is sort of needed. In, in, in you have to. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. It's needed. If you're feeling those feelings of, of imposterism or, or fraud, um, having a support system that pushes you can help you get past that. And I think that may have triggered what you were thinking about. Yeah. For me, um, I feel like a lot of people think I have my shit together, right? Like, and typically I, I pretty much do. Maybe I shouldn't say shit. I don't know if we think we were trying to avoid the curse words, right? Don't bleep it out. Bleep it out. Just bleep it out twice now. Everybody throw in one if you want. So um, I feel like I have my things together pretty well and people around me tend to think that. So when it hit me hard, I think it came from like what you were saying, the background. Um, I came from foster homes and I came from a mom at 16 and um, a pretty rough background starting into this. And I didn't have the support of people going, you can do this, keep trying, you'll figure it out um, as a teenager. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So... You say from a mom at 16, were you saying you were a mom? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a kid at 16. So I've been a mom for a hot minute, you know, (laughs) a hot minute. Wow. Um, and they're both my kids are amazing. They're, they're really good kids. But so I never came from, 
like a, like a good solid foundation of you can do it, you can do it. So when I decided to, you know, reach out to Ben and it hit me that someone's going to realize I don't belong here, it kind of just triggered everything. I think like you don't belong, you don't belong. So don't do this, just go back. And maybe that's insecurity like you were talking about, or maybe it is part of the imposter syndrome, but everyone around me was like, look, you can do it, you can do it. And I'm sitting here going, if I show it to him, clearly I cannot do this. So I I think knowing that you can, sometimes you just need someone to tell you, like you were saying, not everyone comes from somewhere that had the people telling them. And that is, is key to success is having a good support system. Yeah. Wow. I I did not know that. I mean, when I first (laughs) met you, all I saw was someone that was very talented and determined and I never would have guessed that about your background, Carol. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll never forget the interview with you. You were like, do you know what cold fusion is? I was like, like nuclear (laughs) science? Is this like, what are we doing here? This is a really small place to have anything radioactive. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So full disclosure for those that don't know, I hired Carol probably for your first job, right? Your first programming job. It was my, that was actually my first, like, yeah, my first tech job as an intern in college. The dean reached out and was like, Hey, we have these, these things that we're trying to get going and we think you'd be perfect. Go try it. I was like, okay. I was working with the local colleges trying to get some, uh, some college students in to to, uh, get programming jobs. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I did not, I did not know the story about you. And then Ben made me cry. I'm going to blame Ben. It he's wasn't a, Ben. He's a big bully, that Ben. Well, that, it's, ben. that Ben. It's super interesting. I mean, it's such a fascinating story, but just it offers so much perspective on the amount of stuff that people can take for granted that you would never think is something you can take for granted. Like, right. oh, you had parents that encouraged you to be great. Like, <laughs> like that, you know, there's, there's a certain degree of privilege in just having that kind of situation that you don't even, you're not even cognizant of it most of the time. Yeah. All right. Well, that seems like a good enough place to wrap it up. Uh, want to thank everybody for listening. We are officially live now and we have like listeners and, and, uh, no haters. We need haters. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I guess with that, uh, just want to say thank you to everybody that's listening. Remind you to please share the podcast with a friend. If you think that there's somebody that would, uh, enjoy listening to this, maybe somebody that's suffering with imposter syndrome and, and, um, needs a pick me up. Um, so, you know, those word of mouth referrals really help us out. If you are still feeling generous after that, we would love a, a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's supposed to help us out a lot. If you have anything you want us to talk about on the podcast, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. We are at Working Code Pod. And I guess uh, until next time, have a good night. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code. Wow, I just got notified Zoom 5.42 is here. You're going to want to get on that. Yeah, get on that quick. Mm -hmm. If you thought 5.41 was great, (laughs) (laughs) sit down. Yeah.